All right, Romans chapter 6. We're going to do a little bit of review. And the main thing I want to focus on here as we get started is just making sure everyone kind of understands what we're trying to do. So let's do this. Romans chapter 6, I believe. Romans chapter 6 starts the most difficult section in the entire book of Romans. The only thing that rivals it is uh, Romans chapter 2, where we learn that we're going to be judged according to our deeds and trying to understand that. Romans chapter 6 is one of the most difficult sections. And why do I believe Romans chapter 6 is one of the most difficult sections, maybe in the entire Bible, but especially in the book of Romans? Why do I think it's so difficult? I want to make sure everyone knows the difficulty we're trying to figure out here. All right, because it seems to be turning a corner here, right? Paul has really given us a lot of discussion about the theology of justification, the theology of salvation, and now he seems to be turning a corner, seeming to indicate that there are very practical effects that should be the result of your salvation and my salvation. And the way he seems to be describing it is describing something that we can understand intellectually, right? We can read it. We can even possibly understand it theologically. But where does the problems begin? Practically, because we don't experience what we are reading here. And if anyone claims they do experience this, I believe that they, they, they're, they're completely misled and confused and deceived because we know that that's not the reality. And remember, we've talked about this in great detail. I spent um, a good portion of the hour last week telling you One of the issues in Christianity is that sometimes we sell Christianity in one way, right? We sell it, and then what happens? And there's like, there's a Christianity we sell, but the reality is different. Remember all the statistics I gave you from the Barna study? Seeming to indicate Christians are not real. I mean, we have have the same problems, same issues that the world has, right? I mean, over and over and over, study after study demonstrates this. If Christianity really was what we sold it to be, then there would be like, there would be studies just absolutely demonstrating you become a Christian, boom! There's no question about it. And whenever the studies are given, then what does everyone do? Christians just shake their head. Well, none of those people who are interviewed were Christians, right? We just immediately discount everyone. Right? Because if they make us look bad. But the problem is, even if you throw out that study, all you have to do is really look in the mirror, right? And then you realize, wait a minute. Uh, th- this, and I think the longer you're a Christian, the more you begin to realize it. When, you're, when you first become a Christian, you, you, kind of, you have a kind of an image of how things really are. But over time, that image begins to fade and you kind of go, wait a minute. I still have this problem, I still have this problem, I still struggle with this, I still do this. And, and then you find yourself in situations where you don't handle it right. Situa- and then you're like, man, I've got, I've got a problem here. So we have to figure out exactly what Paul is saying, right? We, we can't just discount what Paul is saying because we haven't experienced it. But at the same time, if, we, if what we experience is so radically different than what Paul is saying, we've got to figure out what's going on. And so we have to figure this out. And we're spending, we're going to spend a lot of time. And remember, I want, I'm going to, today, this is what we're really going to emphasize today. I'm going to go through countless commentaries to show you how, like any attempt to go, that any attempt to look at this differently puts us pretty much outside of every church on the face of the planet. Okay, but every commentary, in my estimation, they contradict themselves usually within a few sentences. And you can't, like, if every commentary is contradicting itself, you've got to be willing to acknowledge when Christian literature is just not making any sense. And you'll, you'll see that as we go through this. So let's go to Romans 6. Let's remind ourselves. First of all, I gave you a simple outline for Romans chapter 6. Does everybody remember that outline? Romans chapter 6. I broke the chapter down into two parts. Right? Everybody Remember? Okay, the, uh, the, the first part starts in verse 1. Okay, what shall, we say, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So the first part of your outline is questions about sin and grace. Right, that starts in verse 1. That goes all the way down to what verse? Verse 14. And then what happens in verse 15? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under God's grace? God forbid. So the second part is question about Law and grace. 
Everybody got that? So the first part is a question about sin and grace. It goes from verse 1 to verse 14. The second part is verse 15, question about law and grace, and that goes all the way to where? To the end of the chapter, right? Or pretty close, right? Yeah, the end of the chapter. So everybody see, understand that two-part? So really, what do we have? We have a chapter broken down and trying to answer what? Two questions. Trying to answer two questions. What's the first question? A question about what? Sin and grace. Right? Sin and grace. Everybody got that? What's the second question? About law and grace. Right? About law and grace. Right? Sin, law. Now, we, 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 those are questions every Christian should, should ask, right? Because we all know sin, we all know sin, right? We're all pretty familiar with that concept, correct? We're also familiar with the concept of grace, yes? We're all familiar with the concept of law because the Bible over and over gives you, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this. We are all familiar with law, correct? But we're also familiar with what concept? Grace. So how does this work together? Correct? How do we understand this? What's our relationship to these things? What should it be? So, very simple. And how does each section really uh, proceed? This is the way each section proceeds. It gives you the question, gives you a simple answer, and then what does it give you? An explanation. So each section is made up of a question, a simple answer, and an explanation. That's how it's structured. So the structure is very straightforward. I wish, I wish that the answer, I wish that the uh, understanding was as straightforward as the, as the structure. The structure is very simple. I, I don't think anyone can, I mean, does anyone question the structure that I've identified here? I think the structure is pretty straightforward. Gives you a question, gives you an immediate answer, and then gives you a lengthy explanation. As Sarah said last week, the explanation in some cases is actually not beneficial because the more Paul writes, the more... Yeah, you know, complicated, convoluted, confused. It's like, it, it just kind of messes it all up. Now, some people will act like this is all super simple, but it, put it this way. It's super simple for me to just tell you what's there. It's not as simple for me to try to help you understand what's there in a way that actually makes sense. I can sit here and just give you the outline, boom, 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 and we can be done. I mean, many pastors I've seen covered Romans 6 in a week, right? Two weeks. It's going to be 20 years before we're done because I don't think we're ever going to understand it, all right? So everybody got that. So what's the outline? Verse 1 to verse 14, questions about sin and grace. Verse 15 to verse 23, question about law and grace, all right? Each section is structured in the following way. There's a question. A simple answer and a lengthy explanation, right? You can, you can word it a little different. That's the way I worded it. Everybody got that? So what do we need to look at? The first question, right? And the first question is simple. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now you can understand why someone may ask that question, right? Has he not emphasized God's grace? Absolutely. Has he talked about how wonderful God's grace is? Absolutely. Are we not all thankful for God's grace? Absolutely. Well, if grace is so amazing, and if grace is so wonderful, then why not we just continue sin, sinning so that grace may abound? Now, some may argue that someone's asking that, kind of like a teenager asking a question because they're trying to make an argument against what you're saying. Or some, you could argue that maybe the person is a legitimate question. Right? I think you can, you, some commentators try to describe that, that like Paul is realizing someone's going to make this argument against him. Or maybe he just realizes this would be a normal question that a person may have. So you can see it as kind of an antagonistic question, or you could see it as kind of an honest question. I don't know if that really changes how you interpret the, the, the answer. I, I don't think it really matters to try to determine the motive of the question, Right? I think Paul is just trying to, some people, we'll put it this way. Some people could ask that question honestly, true. And some people could ask that question because they, they're disagreeing with Paul's teaching. Yes? Right? In other words, two people could ask you the same question with two very different motives. Agreed? Okay, all right. 
So there, there is very simple. What shall we see then? Shall we can, uh, continue in sin that grace may abound? And then very straightforward, what does he say in verse 2? Well, he says, God forbid. Everybody see that? God forbid. Now, that is a very interesting phrase because it's used quite frequently in the book of Romans. So let's go through the different times that it is used. Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 4. By no means, okay. We'll go with God forbid as it's used in the King James. Uh, you can tell me if it says by no means in all of these places in the NIV. All right, we'll see if it, it does the same thing. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. What does everyone read in the King James? God forbid. Everybody see that? Does it say by no means in the NIV? Okay, not at all. Same concept, right? God forbid. All right, everybody see that? All right, so there's the first place it's used, Romans uh, 3, 4. The next one is, I believe, in verse 6. Right? I believe it's chapter 3, verse 6. The way I wrote down the references, yes. Um, I just wrote numbers and I didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't write them the correct way. Okay, Romans 3, 6. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Everybody see that? Right? How about verse 31? Do we then make void the law through faith? Everybody see it? Chapter uh, 3, verse 31. God forbid, yea, we establish the law, right? How about chapter 6, right, which we've already read, verse 2. Everybody see that? God forbid. And then how about verse 15? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, all right? I believe in verse 13. Was then that which is good made uh, death unto me? God forbid, all right? Everybody see that? How about chapter 9, I believe, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Chapter, I believe it's 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? I believe it's verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, rather through their, through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy, all right? Um, and I think that's the last, uh, last place that it is used. So, what does that tell you? Is there any significance that Paul uses this phrase over and over and over? What, what do you think, as a, as a Bible student? I know y'all hate when I ask you these questions, but that's okay. Pose a question, right? Either, either anticipating what someone may ask, or may actually be responding to someone asking a difficult question. And then, but this, it's a technique. And what's the technique demonstrate? That the simple answer to all of these situations is what? God forbid. In other words, what? Absolutely no. Absolutely not. So that, that's, that's a simple technique. Now, that, what does that demonstrate? That sometimes the simple answer, though, is never enough. Because in almost every situation, what does he follow up the God forbid with? An explanation, right? Because obviously simply saying no is not enough. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And you know how I feel about that. Why is the best question to ask? You have to ask that question. Because we got to understand it. Simply telling me, hey, you know, so, you know, someone becomes a Christian and like, hey, well, I, you know, I'm saved by grace. Why shouldn't I continue to sin? Me simply telling them, God forbid, is not sufficient. Now, some people will say, well, it should be. Clearly, Paul doesn't believe it should be, right? And he's writing under the inspiration of? So that means God doesn't believe it's sufficient to simply say, no, I've got to understand. So I think that that's just, it's interesting. You could, you could go look at each time he says, God forbid, and kind of look at the, 
the situation, but I just think that that's interesting that that phrase is used a number of times, all right? So go back to Romans chapter 6. All right. So, again, what's the question? The question is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a question about sin and grace, right? What's the simple answer? The simple answer is, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There's the simple answer. Right? So let's take the simple answer apart, okay? Everybody's got the question? Yes? All right, simple answer really has two parts. First part, God forbid, or just no. No. Second part of the simple answer is what? He makes a dogmatic declaration, right? What's the dogmatic declaration he makes? You're dead to sin. How how could you continue to live in sin? You're dead. That's the simple answer. Now, Guess what? That simple answer is troubling because we've got to figure out what that means. He seems to indicate from this statement that if you're in this room right now and you claim to be a Christian, that it should be impossible for you to do what? Well, let's use the words of the text. Let's be very specific here. We don't want to, to live in sin, right? Is that, is that not the words of the text? All right, so according to him, it's impossible for you as a Christian to live in sin. And the reason it's impossible is because of what? You're dead, and what's the exact language? Dead to sin. So the simple answer is, God forbid, can't do it. No, you can't continue to do it. You live in sin because you're dead to it. Now, we could jump right to his explanation and we're going to have to work through the explanation, but trust me, the explanation, explanation creates more problems than it's going to add clarity. But we can't even get into the explanation because as soon as we get to the explanation, we're going to have to spend six weeks trying to figure out what he's talking about. All right? But before we get to the explanation, okay, what does it mean to be dead to sin? All right? So everyone, if you have taking notes, just write in large letters, dead to sin, question mark. Right? You've got to figure out what that means. All right? Now, anyone's ever read Romans 6, when you read that, that's Paul making a declaration, making a dogmatic statement about you if you claim to be a Christian, that you're dead to sin. Now, what do we do with this? Well, let's just take some, a, a few moments and let's go through every... I, just, I don't even know how many commentaries I have here. I'm just gonna, uh, some of these I'll have here, physical copies, so that you can see. Others I took from all kinds of different sources. So, just, we're going to go through this, all right? We're going to try to understand it. Here's from the Explore the Buy Personal Study Guide, Romans, for spring 2020. All right? Here's what they have to say. I'll back up just a little bit, all right? Um, Here we go. If all our sins have been forgiven, then why should we worry about doing what's right? Apparently, that was a question circulating through the church in Rome. Paul had just said that God's grace and mercy are magnified through his forgiveness of sin. If more sin leads to more grace, why not sin as much as possible and magnify God's grace as much as possible? It could be that some in Rome were trying to twist the doctrine of justification to explain their own worldly behavior. Paul knew the danger of letting this idea gain steam. He was ready to demolish their arguments. Now again, that's kind of of making it like it was an antagonistic question. I don't know if it was antagonistic. I think it's an honest question. I mean, if sin is wonderful and every time I sin, God's grace is magnified, then I'm going to magnify his grace, right? So, yeah, now again, yeah, some of it may have been negative. Some of it may have been just, you know, inquisitive. I just want to make sure we don't assign too much uh, motive here, all right? Paul used the Greek phrase rendered God forbid 10 times in Romans. Each time he distinguished, now listen, each time he uses the phrase, he distinguished orthodox teaching from heresy. That's a good way of explaining why he used it. That's pretty good. While the English translation here feels strong, it really doesn't reflect the degree of Paul's dismay. The reason was simple. No one claims the power of the gospel should intentionally go looking for chances to sin. Again, I don't know if these people are looking for a chance to sin or just simply asking the obvious question, well, if sin makes 
God's grace look great, then why wouldn't I want to make it look great? Like, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being too nice, uh, but I just think everyone wants to assign such major negative motives here. So heresy is that the question indicates a heresy that, hey, we're going to continue to sin so that God's grace may be magnified. They're claiming that that's a heretical idea. And maybe it is. But right. So so the question may indicate a heretical way of thinking, but it it may be just someone asking again. All the commentaries want to make the question like a very negative thing. And I and I'm not I'm not so I just think that if I lived at that time and I heard this teaching, it would probably be a question I would ask. And it wouldn't be because I wanted to have some like. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand it. Right. Exactly. Again, they assign a lot, they do a lot of interpreting someone's motive. And I, I just don't think the text gives us the ability to do that. All right, here we go. We understand that a corpse no longer participates in the things of this world. Now, they just give you a very uh, idea of what they think dead to sin means, right? All right, let me read it again. We understand that a corpse no longer participates in the things of this world. Dead people can't eat or drink or go out with friends. They no longer respond to the stimuli that excites the rest of us. It's impossible to live while dead. That was Paul's point about Christians and sin. When we accept Christ's death as the sacrifice for our sins, we don't disavow sin, we die to it. We become a new creation. Please, I told you that's how people were going to re- relate this to 2 Corinthians 5.17, which you know I don't believe in that interpretation of 2 Corinthians 5.17. While sin, now listen, uh, this is, okay, this is where I start having like, I want to start having a seizure, okay? okay. Watch how schizophrenic this is, right? This is all in the same paragraph. You ready? It's like, it's like two people wrote two different things and someone put it together. We understand that a corpse no longer participates in the things of this world. That seems pretty dogmatic, right? So if you become a Christian, what can you no longer do? Participate in the things of this world. You're not even able. Right? Dead people can't eat or drink or go out with friends. That means you lack the ability to even do it. They no longer respond to the stimuli that excites the rest of us. So any stimuli that's sinful, you can't even respond to it. Why? You're dead. That seems very dogmatic, okay? It's impossible to live while dead. That was Paul's point about Christians and sin. When we accept Christ's death as his sacrifice for our sins, we don't disavow sin, we die to it. We become a new creation. Now here we go. Here's the next sentence. While sin might continue its attempt to have influence, believers no longer should respond to the old stimuli that leads us down that path. Now wait a minute. The previous made it that we can't. Now they're saying we shouldn't. So is it we shouldn't or we can't? <laughs> so which is it? If shouldn't you shouldn't have to tell me don't, right? I shouldn't have to tell Bobby don't sin because Bobby can't. Well, oh, clearly we do. We but you see, just have, like and they just move right on. That's it. They just move on to the next section. It's, it's, clearly, it, it's it may it's incoherent. Like any, any smart person reading that would be like, wait a minute, is it that I can't or that I shouldn't? If I can't, then you can't tell me I shouldn't. Right? So what, what does, so what is the, what's the, from that commentary, what do we end up with? Do we still understand what dead means? Well, they tried to explain what dead means and then they backed away from what they stated it meant. They made it very clear that you can't, you can't respond to the stimuli. You can't do those things. You're dead. And then the next minute, well, you shouldn't do those things. Well, I don't have to go to the graveyard and tell the people in the graveyard, you shouldn't be running around in Tuscola at midnight. You shouldn't smoke. You shouldn't drink. They can't. 
That's the, literally the image they gave us in the first part and then the last part. Like, well, you know, you shouldn't. You shouldn't respond to that stimuli. Well, you just told me I can't respond to that stimuli. So which is it? Any logical person reading that would say, uh, I need some clarification. But pastors never give the clarification. Right, right, exactly, yeah. There's completely, there's, they're like night and day. Like, they, they can't, we can, like, what, well, then it would be like, there would be, it would be easy to 100% demonstrate it, right? I mean, this would be the easiest thing in the world to prove. Someone becomes a Christian, it'd be Christians everywhere, not sinning. And that's not the case. Christians sin, 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 sin. Unless you do what? Start redefining what? Sin is. And that's where we always end up. Right? We, as long as I don't do the bad things. But that's, that's not... Or the habitual or, But see, yeah, but that's the thing. How do we define what's habitual? I can guarantee that if you were talking to the person who wrote that, they would define habitual sins as things like drinking all the time, But the, but the thing is, there's a million sins that we can, be, can continue on a habitual basis. That's just... Just being alive. Just being alive, right. Yes. So, so that, that one wasn't very helpful, correct? All right. Let's go to some here, all right? Dead to sin. Many people think that if Jesus paid it all, we now have this divine Visa card with an unlimited balance. We can just flash it whenever we want to cover whatever sin we choose. And as the Apostle Paul anticipated, some people will even justify their actions by saying, hey, if God gets more glory by showing grace, doesn't my sinning give him more space to be glorified? So again, they're, they're trying to make it like it's a negative thing, like people are looking for an excuse to sin. Okay, again, I'm not, I don't believe the question necessarily demonstrates that, but okay. Paul answers these claims with the strongest negation possible. By no means. I like how some of the older translations handle the phrase, God forbid. Why is Paul so opposed to this line of thinking? He writes, how can we who died to sin still live in it? But that raises an interesting question in its own right, doesn't it? What does it mean when he says we're, we're dead to sin? All right, good. I like the way this commentary is going, right? Because they at least understand, we've got to understand what it means to be dead to sin. So now what do we need to figure out? What's their answer? What does Paul mean? What, what Paul doesn't mean is that we have all lost all interest in sin. Okay. So now they're going to, so at least this is a little bit better, right? Hey, doesn't mean we've lost all interest in sin. That's good because we all agree that we haven't. We haven't. Okay, so all right, let's see where they go here. Certain streams of Christian thought have in fact taught that Christians can achieve earthly perfection. But Romans 7 makes it clear that believers are still tempted and seduced by sin. In addition to, well, nearly every Christian, uh, in addition to, well, nearly every Christian's experience with temptation. And that's true. Every Christian's experience with temptation realizes that we still are drawn to it, tempted by it, and obviously we're not dead. They go on to say, fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. Oh, no, they think Paul's going to provide us an actual answer of what it means to be dead to sin. This is what they say. Are you ready? When you accept Christ, you die to sin in two ways. Are you ready? You may want to write these down. Now, when you write this down, this is not me teaching. This is this commentary. So we're going to say, here's one view of what it means to be dead to sin. All right? Here we go. You ready? They say being dead to sin means we renounce it once and for all. We renounce it once and for all. Okay. That, that, I, need, I need to know what that means, right? What does that sound like? We renounce it once and for all. That seems to mean like, hey, I renounce it. And that, that's, it's over. Like, like. I don't, like, what does that mean? I renounce it once and for all. Like, like I, I, they're going to offer an explanation. Let's see what they have to say here. All right. Now, listen carefully. Let's see if we see any broken logic here. Everybody ready? 
This is called repentance or changing your mind towards sin. It means you were once the Lord, it, it means you were once the Lord of your own life, but from this point forward, you are going to do an about face and follow Jesus as the Lord of your life. Repentance is the essence of conversion. If repentance didn't happen at your conversion, then whatever else happened at your conversion, it wasn't a real conversion. Some may say, well, I believe in God, and that's all well and good, but the book of James says even the demons believe in God, but it doesn't mean they're saved. There's a world of difference between believing in God and trusting in him as your Lord. Others, uh, others lean on their church involvement, but as my youth pastor used to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a quarter pounder with extra cheese. The core issue is repentance. Conversion begins in repentance and surrender, and it can be pictured in baptism. One of the questions we ask people at, at the church that this commentary, the pastor is a pastor of, when they get baptized is, are you willing to go wherever Jesus tells you to go and do whatever he tells you to do? We put them under the water, showing they've already died to their old way of life, of living, and are being raised to a new way of life. Right, so they say the first way, it just means you renounce it once and for all. Does that really help you? Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the, I, I do agree with this. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with dead to sin. I don't know. But I do like the idea that, yes, I agree that when you become a Christian, your attitude towards sin should change. Right. In other words, that's sinful. We acknowledge that it's sinful. We confess that it's sinful. And if we commit said act, we know that we've sinned. But that doesn't mean I'm dead. Right? So but what they seem to say is, it's just, you renounce it. You renounce it. Okay, well, I, I renounce that I don't love the Lord God with all my heart, body, mind, body, and soul. And guess what? It's not going to happen tomorrow. I'm still not going to love him with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. There's just no way that that's ever going to occur. So what does it mean that I renounced it? True? So I agree that we are to repent. I agree that there's a, a change of mind about it, but I just don't know how that equates to being dead to it. Remember, what's the exact word Paul uses? You can no longer live in it because you're dead to it. Well, that seems to be more than just me saying words that, hey, it's bad. I do agree that that's a key principle in becoming a Christian, is your mind about sin has to change. What you used to do and not feel bad about, you now have to acknowledge is bad. That doesn't mean you're not going to ever commit it. That's where sometimes lost people get so confused. As wait, you believe that's a sin and you committed it. <laughs> yes, um, that doesn't, I don't justify doing it, but uh, that's, the, that's the whole issue with Christianity. Christianity provides a morality that we can't keep because if we could keep it, then we wouldn't have needed God to come in human flesh to die for us. So the whole point of Christianity is that the morality taught in the Bible is a morality that we can't keep. That's the whole, like, the lost people never get that. Like, they're, they're, the law, in the lost person's mind, well, you should just not believe it's wrong. Or you should, <laughs> okay. or you should just stop doing it. Well, but we, it, it's not, and that's one of the most amazing things about the Bible is it gives a morality that we seem incapable of actually living up to. Because there's something obviously seriously wrong in the human heart. And forget the Bible, just look at the world. Wouldn't the world be a better place if people didn't rob, steal, kill, lie, cheat? Wouldn't it be better for everyone? And no matter what the government tries to do, have they ever been able to improve any of that? No. Israel had every kind of law in the books, right? They had God's actual physical presence. And what did they still do? They still did it all. I mean, Cain, I mean, Adam and Eve had the entire garden, and guess what they did? They, they still turned against God. There's, and they didn't even have the sinful nature. There's something in human beings that we, we, leads to behavior that is actually destructive and counterproductive to the betterment of society. Right? Well, why do countries have to fight wars with each other? Just, you've got your land, we've got our land, just let's go about our land. But no, we've got to find a way to have a fight. Arguing, debate, division. Racism, hatred, just on and on and on and on and on. And you can say, be nice, be nice, be nice. I mean, you've had kids. Just, hey, if you just stop arguing and fighting with each other, everyone will have a good day. The next thing you know, 
They're arguing it and you're like, why can you not realize that this is beneficial to you? We've all been there. That, that to me tells me there's something wrong inside of everyone. Even if you don't have the Bible. Even people who say, I don't believe in the Bible's morality will still find themselves doing things that they even believe is wrong. Because it's just, unless you just start saying nothing is wrong. And, and, and that, that lasts for how long? Until someone does something to you and you'll say, that was wrong and that's not fair. So we, we don't even stay true to that. It's just, yeah, I, I, I don't get that. All right, so the, the, their argument is being dead to sin means we renounce it once and for all. I don't even know how that would help anybody. All right, here's the second way. You ready? Oh boy, now listen carefully to this one. Being dead to sin means that through his resurrection, Christ has destroyed the reign of sin in our lives. Being dead to sin means that through his resurrection, Christ has destroyed the reign of sin in our lives. Now, what does that seem to imply? If it's not raining, that means it has no more control. And if it doesn't have control, then what should, me, what should that logically mean? My ability to not do it. Well, let's see what they do, what, what they say here. When you accept Christ as your Savior, Jesus pours the power of the resurrection in your heart. This is, this is also pictured in baptism. We go under the water showing our body of sin has died and then come out of the water showing that Christ, the life of Christ has become our own. And because of that, we have access to Christ's resurrection power over sin. Now, according to this, what do you have? You have the resurrection power of Christ over sin. So that means the person you know who's not a Christian, they don't have that power. So you have the resurrection power of God in your life over sin, which should mean well, shouldn't that mean that you have the ability to be perfect? If the power of God that raised Jesus from death is inside of you, should that not give you then the power, according to them, that power is directly related to what? Related to your ability to overcome sin. That. Right. Now, I, will, I, I could argue, like, wait, wait now what, how does this work? Now, let's see, let's see what else they have to say here. So let me, let me read that again. You have access to Christ's resurrection power over sin. So this would imply that if you sin, it's because you're not accessing the power that is in you. Or you're not saved. That's, that's where this definitely leads to. This is where it definitely leads to. This is where people become so discouraged they give up on Christianity. Uh, uh, they, they go, they say, um, when we start following Christ, the Spirit takes the dead branch of our life and grafts it into Christ's living root and his life starts to flow into us. So when you become a Christian... Then the Spirit of God is in you, and now this life, this power is just going to flow through you. It's going to flow through you. You've got a power that, that you did not have prior to. But listen, here we go. You ready? They have this in great big letters. Not sinless perfection, but a new direction. They just told me I have the power of God in my life, but now they, they immediately say, no, 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 not sinless perfection. Not sinless perfection. No. Don't get that idea. I mean, you've got the power of God in you, but the power of God is not good enough to get you to sinless perfection. Isn't that just a cop-out? Destroyed the reign of sin in your life, right. Destroyed it. But hey, but, but you, can't, you can't be sinless. He didn't really destroy it. I like, how do Christians not, this doesn't drive the average Christian like to the point of drinking. Like this, at this point, I don't, I don't even know what I'm supposed to believe. Um, okay, so this, uh, they're, they're going to continue. Here's Paul's logic. If sin is renounced through baptism and its reign is broken by the power of resurrection, then how can you continue to willfully practice it? 
How can you continue to willfully practice it? What does that seem to imply? It's up to you. Now you can just choose not to sin. Again, the people who write this, I want to, I want them, I want to hang out with them. I want to hang out with them because I'm guarantee you, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I, I know it's wrong, but I would probably just do everything I might can to provoke them, just to say, wait a minute, whoa, come on now, you choose not to sin, come on. Well, and then they'll start probably making an, an excuse that it wasn't a sin. That's what, that's what this leads to, is excusing your behavior as not being sinful. <laughs> right. Yeah, probably. The word willfully, please note, the word willfully is important here. I'm not talking about moments or even seconds of sin. All believers will have moments when they choose sin. Did you hear that? He's not. So moments or even seasons of sin, they don't count. Because all, listen, all believers will have moments when they choose sin. Everyone, every Christian is going to choose sin for a moment. Yeah, because he's already said that it's broken and it's, we have the power of God. But every Christian is going to have moments of sin. All right, so then what does he mean here? All right, here we go. When Paul, what Paul is talking about is a set direction, a pattern. We're all following a trajectory either towards God or away from him. In other words, dying to sin does not mean sinless perfection, but it does mean a new direction. After all, we cannot encounter something as powerful as the resurrection and not show the effects. So one hand, he wants to talk about this great power. But the power is limited. Like He's not acknowledging he's placing a limit on the power. The limit, it cannot get you to sinless perfection. Well, that sounds like, why, why, what's the point of a power that can't get me to the, the finish line, right? Like that's, that's a weak God. God gives me a power, but he limits, he puts a governor on the power. You know what I'm saying? You can't, you can't yeah. I can't go any faster. Can't go, that's it, I'm done. That's as far as I can go, because God's power won't get me to perfection. So, so we're all going to have moments. So what, what's his way out of this? It's a direction. It's a new direction. It's a new direction. So, yeah, moments are just a slowdown. You're still going in the same direction. It's just, it can't be something long term. Now, again, what's the problem with this? Well, first of all, everyone sins every day. Is that not prolonged? Is that not habitual? Like that's when everyone always says, well, the key here is habitual sin. Well, wait a minute. I habitually sin every day. Like, well, you don't commit the same sin. Are you sure? Because again, let's just go back to what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, just those two. Does anyone pull that off on any consistent basis? Ever? There's no way I don't think I can, I don't think I'll ever say that I've lo- I love God completely. There's, I don't even know how I would even qu- qualify it, measure it, right? But I doubt that I ever love him anywhere close to that. And truly love my neighbor as myself, truly? You talk about maybe for a moment? Maybe for a moment, and you know how quickly you can decide not to love them as yourself, especially if they don't show you the cr- uh, gratitude or appreciation or you feel like you're getting something back. You'll stop loving really quick, will you not? So what does that demonstrate? A direction, right? Does it not? Like, this just seems like a cop-out that he, what has he promoted so far in this commentary? Power! Power! You've renounced it. It's the rain is broken in your life. You have the resurrection power of God. But it won't get you to perfection. It'll just get you in a new direction. (laughs) That, That seems like, what? I don't even get that. And then they'll go on here. I'm going to have to stop here. Let's say you're stuck in a parking lot. They're going to give an illustration. Let's say you're stuck in a parking lot because your little Honda Civic has a dead battery. Someone pulls up in a Ford F-250 with jumper cables, four inches thick, ready to jump your Civic's little battery. But you say, wait a minute. First, I want to make sure power is flowing through these cables. So we attach both 
positive and negative nodes to your tongue and say, yep, it's giving power. Okay. I don't think so. All right. Um, I, I guess I, I okay, I'm, I'm not really getting the point here, but let's see. Okay. If you really attach those jumper cables to your tongue, the power would change you. You'd walk different. You'd talk different. Shoot, you'd smell different. There's no way to encounter that level of power and stay the same. The resurrection is not just a fact of history past. It's power to make new into, into the present. The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life. Well, then again, you see, he, well, now he's getting, what he, he ends by emphasizing what? The power. Well, if the power is so great, why did he put a limit to the power? Yeah, so, so like, you can't, you can't have it both ways. Hey, God's power is, is, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you, and that power is for you to overcome sin. And he broke the reign of sin in your life. But, you can't be perfect. And you're going to have moments of sin. You're going to have seasons of sin. You're going to have seconds of sin. All right, so I can't be perfect. I'm going to have moments of sin, seasons of sin, seconds of sin, but I'll go in a new direction. So you're telling me the power is only enough to get me in a new direction. That's it. That does not not seem like it's contradicting itself. Yes, all right. Now, I think we're going to have to stop. Let me look here. Let's see how long we've Going. I'm used to now. I've gotten used to now sitting in front of a computer where I can see the clock and tells me how long I've been. Let's see. Oh, we're 46 minutes. We can go a few more. All right. I would like to finish and get us to where we need to go. All right. Here we go. We got uh, one more. Well, we got a couple more commentaries, but uh, we'll go with one more here. All right. Do I have, I have a lot here, but none of them really add much to this. Did that one help? Did anyone think that was helpful? Right. And, 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 and that's, that's the way all the commentaries are going to go. All the commentaries are going to try to say, hey, you got this power, sin is broken, you, you got the power of God in your life, but... And it's like, that's the thing that, it's always bothered me. Right. And, 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 and what's weird is they think the word habitual just fixes it. Does everybody understand why I say that that doesn't fix it? Because we sin every day. By definition, that would mean sin is what in your life? Habitual. So are you saying it's only a certain sin? Well, if you say it's only a certain sin, well, then why? Like, then are you telling me that every day y'all commit different sins? You never commit the same one twice or three times or four times or five? Like, come on, they show up over and over. You've got to admit it. Now, it may not be, uh, now, I think what they mean is you're not going to commit what? A big one habitually. Right, right. So then, what, is that, what does that do again? Now, that becomes Catholicism. Here's the, if you commit the mortal ones, then that proves, as Sarah said it, they didn't, they, they, they didn't go there, but that's where they imply it, then you don't have the power of God in your life. So you're not saved. Well, David... Committed now they say, well, he only did it once. Well, how about Solomon? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what that's what always drives me crazy is when people read the Bible. Well, you know, uh, well, David only did it once. You don't know what David did because the Bible doesn't record every event of his life. It records one time. But how about Solomon? Yeah, David had multiple wives. Solomon had wives and concubines, so that means he was habitually committing adultery over and 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 over, and he became an idolater. So are you going to say Solomon wasn't saved? Well, if we say he wasn't saved, then we're literally using the book written by a lost person in the Bible. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Proverbs, Right? And that, was that not habitual sin? Well, so then what will people, well, that was Old Testament. Old Testament, so it doesn't count. Well, then when they get to the New Testament, Peter denied, Peter denied, well, he wasn't saved yet. Some people will try to argue. Or how about, how about Paul? 
Well, I'm just saying, that's, these are the excuses you can hear. How about Paul? And Romans 7 is going to say the things I want to do. Well, then people say, well, but, but it wasn't habitual sin. Like, we try to make every excuse in the world. And that's, that's, that becomes the problem here. You have to redefine what sin is. There's, we've got to understand dead to sin in a different way. Where everyone agrees. I think that's what I'm trying to get across. All right. This commentary starts this way. To be dead to sin does not mean we are sinless. To be dead to sin does not mean we are sinless. Okay, exactly. So let's see what they say. Paul made clear that he continued to struggle with temptation and sin. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Well, wait, Paul just acknowledged sin is still living in him. If sin is still living in him, then how is he dead to it? That's Romans 7, 18 through 19. If Paul could call himself the worst of sinners, 1 Timothy 1, 16, then we should certainly expect to continue our conflict with sin until we reach heaven. Here we go. You ready? Here's what they're going to define what it means. To be dead to sin means we no longer need to be controlled by sin, by our sin nature. According to them, to be dead to sin means you are no longer controlled by your sin nature. We no longer need to be controlled by our sin nature. Yes. So you have the choice not to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, which means you should have the ability to choose what? To be sinless. But then they started off by saying, you won't be. <laughs> so I don't understand. Right, let's continue. Uh, Romans 6, 17 teaches that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart a pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Before Christ, we are slaves to sin. Now we have a new master. Sin continues to exist, but we're no longer dominated by it. As Christians, we have God's spirit within us to empower us. However, we still face temptation and must strive to stand against sin. We can live dead to sin... As we follow Christ, knowing that our Lord will one day remove the curse of sin altogether. I, I don't even know why that commentary was even written. I mean, that's the most useless thing I've ever heard. You, you can't be perfect, but you have the power of God. It, it, you have, now, if you follow Christ, you can live dead to sin, but you're not going to be perfect. Well, well, then what does it mean? See, th- this is where Christians just accept answers because they sound good. But, but that, to me, that doesn't sound good because guess what? When I leave church, guess what I'm going to discover? I'm still sinning. And at some point, you start, be, you start questioning, am I even saved? Does the Bible even work? Does God even exist? Is Christianity even real? And don't tell me that you never struggled with that. We've all, if you've ever struggled with any sin in your life, you know, if you, if, look, the more you are aware of what sin is, which is any deviation from God's perfect holiness, which means I'm currently, I'm never, what does he tell us? What's the, a simple command, it's stated in Leviticus, it's repeated in Peter. Be ye holy. Have you ever been as holy as God has been? Never. That means I'm in a perpetual state of disobedience to that command. Perpetual state. I have never been as holy as God. Ever. Now, some people just live like not really aware of it. Then you have people in history like Luther who understood that he was never there. And so he went, he was going crazy. He was losing his mind. And people are like, he was just insane. That, that drives me insane. Be holy. Okay. And then I got pastors saying, you've got the power of God inside of you now. Sin has broken. His, God has broken the reign of sin in your life. You have the power. Well, well, then why can't I just be as holy as God is? He tells me to be. So if he tells me to be, then why can't I be? All right. Here we go. This is the this is the last one, All right? I've got I've got MacArthur's over there that doesn't help either. Same same idea that hey you got all this power you can do it you can do it you can do it but hey but you're never going to do it perfectly. Okay, so I'll just end with this one. The phrase "dead to sin" 
only occurs once in the Bible. Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I don't know when they say dead to sin only occurs once in the Bible, because, yeah, um, Romans 6.2, dead to sin. And in Romans 6.11, well, it says dead unto sin, but same, same concept, so I don't know why they say that, but okay. Um, as, this is what they say. As Christians, we are dead to sin through our union with Christ. In other words, we are to consider ourselves as being free from the bondage of sin. So you're to consider yourself free from the bondage of sin. Jesus is the one who bore our sins and his body on the cross. And we died with him when he was crucified. So the phrase dead to sin means, are you ready? This is what it means, that a Christian who is trusted in the work of Christ on the cross is no longer a slave of sin and is freed from it. Right? So we're, we were a slave, now we're free. Again, I, I, I'm not, obviously I'm not free, right? If I was free, then guess what I would do? I wouldn't sin. So, so like, we've got to redefine what these terms mean. Will, will everyone agree that we have to try to figure this out? All right. Um, let's see here. Um, Yeah, basically, yeah, this this is, uh, I'll just summarize with their last sentence. The phrase dead to sin means that Christians is no longer under the power of sin. We're no longer under the power of sin. Well, if, if I'm no longer under the power of sin, then why does it seem to exercise power over me? Well, that either means what? One, I have the ability not to sin, so you can't keep telling me that I can't be uh, perfect because I would have the ability to be perfect. So you can't have it both ways. You're completely free from it. You're, 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 the power of sin is broken in your life. You're free. You have the power of God. Not only, are you bro- not only is the power of sin broken in your life, you have the power of God empowering you. So the power of sin is broken. The power of God is in me. But then I can't be perfect. Seems to, that makes no sense, right? So what are your options? We have the ability to be perfect. We just don't choose to be. All right, well, if that's true, then we should be able to put it to the test, right? I think we put it to the test. We'll just say, Emma, for the next three months, you have to be sinless. All right? Everybody, we'll put someone up to it? Nobody wants to do it? I think we should do the experiment, and we'll see how well how Emma fares. Do you think she can pull it off? Okay. No, she, won't even, she won't even make it past tonight, is what you're telling me? You're not going to make it 20. Well, you're letting me down here. But the point is, it's like we can do a test and nobody here is going to pull it off. Some of you will sin before you even get back home. Some of you may be sinning right now because you want me to shut up. Okay, right? Okay, right? Yes? Okay, yeah, well, give me a break. But, but we, that's lying, okay? That's a sin, okay? All right. So you just lied, all right? There you go. So, but we, don't we agree that like, we could do it an experiment? So clearly the willing thing doesn't work, right? All right, so if I, if I can't be perfect, then that means any power you try to hype is a limited power, which then makes no sense. It's the power of God, but it can't get me to, perf- to perfection. It doesn't make any sense. So here is the question you need to write down. Right? Here's the question you need to write down. And it's kind of the question we, we ended with last week, and we're back to the same question, but we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to show you where we're going to have our problems here. You ready? Here we go. Here's the question I want you to write down the way I put it down in my notes, if I can get to the bottom of all these commentaries, because i got like a million of them. All right, here we go. Is it possible that there is another way to understand and interpret the phrase dead to sin. Is it possible that there's another way to understand and interpret the phrase dead to sin? Is there any other way? Well, let, let, yeah, let me, I'll try to explain this way. We're all, everyone understands it to mean that dead to sin in a practical way, right? That, hey, 
Practically, I'm dead to sin, so practically I should be able to live free from sin and I have the power over it. Is it possible that Paul is still using this somehow that I'm dead to sin in my position? Now, you would say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't quite make sense because clearly he's talking about living in it. I understand that, but is he not possibly simply saying, look, you shouldn't continue to live in sin practically because positionally you're dead to it. Now, but the reality is you're still going to. That's why we need God's grace. But you shouldn't have the attitude of, hey, I can just do whatever I want. The dead to sin, I think, because positionally, am I not dead to sin? I'm completely dead to it. Because in, in, in my position, what am I? I'm in Christ. I'm dead. I'm perfectly righteous. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, right? In Christ Jesus. I'm a new creature. That's my position. But practically, now, what's the struggle of Christianity? The struggle of Christianity is trying to live out practically what is true positionally, and we all know that we will never be able to pull that off. That's why we have to rely on our position and not our practice, because my practice will never show me that I'm saved. Because it will never be good. I don't know if we can interpret it that way. Go back, open your Bibles to Romans 6, and then we'll close. Here's where the problem's going to start. All right? Okay, Romans 6, 2 is the short answer, right? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, what is he going to do in verse 3? He's going to start the explanation. Look at that explanation and tell me how quick we run into a problem. Well, there's one word that should just you should immediately go, oh, no. What? Baptized. What's the next problem we're going to run into? What baptism is he talking about? Because some will interpret this to mean what? Your physical baptism is what makes you dead to sin. What does he literally say in verse 3? Know ye, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So when did you die? When you were baptized. So wait, now, this would mean that the only way to be dead is you have to be physically baptized. So now this would lead to what teaching? Baptismal regeneration. So now we're going to run into a hole. Even before we can try to figure out what it means dead to sin, now we've got to figure out how do we become dead to sin? He, now listen, whether, we'll have to figure out the baptism, but let me explain this. He seems to be implying this, that your dead to sin is based off your union with Christ. Now, if that is true, then that seems to speak of what? If my dead to sin is connected to my union with Christ, this seems to be speaking of my what? My position. Right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm united with Christ. In Christ, Trevor is what? Dead to sin. I don't longer live because my, I think Sarah used the word identity. I'm identified with Christ. When, when God sees me, he sees what? The righteousness of Christ? The blood of Christ? The perfection of Christ? The power of Christ? The resurrection of Christ? Doesn't see me. I've died. I was crucified in Christ Jesus. When he died, I died. So when I stand before God, he doesn't see Trevor. He sees his son. So I'm dead. So guess where it happened? It's connected to that. If it's connected to my union, then I have to understand it first and foremost somehow to do with my position, not my practice. That's the argument I'm going to try to make. I don't know if I can sustain it, and I don't know. Put it this way. Any shortcomings in my explanation... Well, the other one has just as many shortcomings. Because at least in my explanation, I can explain why I still sin. Because my position has nothing to do with my practice, right? I'm just, remember we talked about justification? In justification, what do we believe? Do we believe we're infused with anything? No, we're imputed. So guess what? I'm declared perfectly righteous, but am I perfectly righteous? No, I'm a saint and a sinner at the same time. Remember I was whole Luther's explanation. I'm a saint. How am I a saint? Because I'm in Christ Jesus. How am I a sinner? Because I'm breathing. 
Am I dead to sin? Absolutely. Am I not dead to sin? Absolutely. Isn't that not seem the contradiction that we find in Romans? Paul's like, dead to sin, dead to sin. Romans 7, hey, the things I want to do, I don't do the things. Well, Paul, I thought you were dead to sin. Dead to sin positionally, practically. And I think that that, that to me, fits what all these other commentaries are trying to say. Hey, you're dead. It's free, but you're going to still do it. Well, then I'm not dead to it. But I am dead to it which way? That's the argument I'm going to make. I'm not telling you it's... Don't, don't walk out here saying that that's the right one because I'm not saying I can even prove it. Right? I don't, know, I don't know if it even really works with the language of the text. I'm just saying that the other explanation doesn't make any sense to me. I've been a Christian for way too long to know that I'm not dead to sin. I've known all of you too long to know that you're not dead to sin. You've known each other too long to know you're not dead to sin. You've all known yourself too long to know you're not dead to sin in any practical way. And to try to just argue, well, it just means a new direction. Uh, yeah, okay, a, a new direction that is filled with what? It's just different kinds of sin, right? The sins I committed before I was lost, I don't commit those anymore. Not selling drugs, not doing drugs, all, all the things that, not hanging out of the graveyard with a Ouija board, not reading the Satanic Bible, all, all those things I used to do, I don't do those. So it is a new direction, but guess what my new direction is still filled with? Sin. Right? So, there was a change. I do believe it, a change occurs. And the, and the main reason the changes occurs because of a, a change of mind. Which should lead to a change of direction. And, a Christian, you're trying to follow Christ, but we're never going to do it perfectly. So, if you talk about all of this power, I should be able to do it perfectly. But I know one thing, that I'm perfectly dead in Christ Jesus. I was crucified with him. I no longer live. I live by the power of, this, of the Son. Well, I'm, that, that's got to be not just a practical way. It means in Christ Jesus. I live in him. I'm living here, but there's two realities. There's the positional reality and the practical reality, and they never, t- never match. No, until the practical is glorified and transformed to meet out the positional. Glorification is bringing the positional and the practical together and making it a reality. Right now, I'm schizophrenic. I'm perfect, but I'm not. I'm holy, but I'm not. I'm dead, but I'm not. I'm a saint, but I'm not. I'm sinless, but I'm not. I'm righteous, but I'm not. That's going to be my thought. Now, if you disagree... Please read, read Romans 6. Let me know any questions. People listening online, I'm going to get 9,000 emails telling me that I'm a heretic. But, you know, I'm not trying to be a heretic, but at the same time, I'm not going to deny the reality of everyone's life. Agreed? All right. So we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we have seen how other people have handled the text. We've posed a very important question of how we should understand what it means to be dead to sin. We believe that somehow this is connected to the position we have in your son. Lord, we, we don't want to undermine how we should live our practical life, but at the same time, we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we deny the reality that we all experience, which ultimately leads to despair, discouragement, and giving up. There's got to be a better way to understand this text, and I pray that you would do everything to help us understand that we would be dedicated and committed to trying to find out the truth, no matter how many people may disagree. We ask this in Christ's name. And everyone said...